Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. You know, typically speaking, the opposing forces in military conflicts generally represent radically different views of the world. In the United States Civil War, you had North versus South, a a showdown over slavery and states' rights and the, the vastly different cultures of Union versus Confederacy. I'm not completely convinced that those cultures have come any closer to being similar over the last, uh, last decades. In the World War II, the Allied powers fought against the Axis powers. Even in our ongoing war on terror, you have this conflict between the Western way of life and uh, the vastly different picture that's painted by Islamic uh, extremists. However, there's never been a battle that's been fought between two foes of such different character than the opening offensive in the 1982 Falklands War in which the British Special Air Services set out to retake South Georgia. Now, if you don't remember the British fighting over South Georgia in 1982, don't worry, we're not talking about Savannah. Uh, We're talking about an island in the South Atlantic that doesn't have a whole lot on it, more than seals and, and penguins and things like that. On April 25th, 1982, British forces launched Operation Paraket to recapture the island from Argentine military control. Shortly after the SAS landed on the island, one of the soldiers saw movement on a hillside near the Penguin River. Believing he had seen the Argentine army, he opened fire. He was soon joined by other members of his division. The Argentine army was caught by complete surprise as the Brits mounted a charge. They never even had an opportunity to return fire. The Brits on that day in April, had secured an overwhelming victory against their foe. As they got closer to the position that was held by the Argentine soldiers, they were disappointed to find that they had not slaughtered a single Argentinian soldier. Instead, those soldiers that they saw on the banks of the Penguin River were actually a colony of elephant seals. And so on that day, the British armed forces destroyed not the Argentinian army, but an entire colony of elephant seals. You know, if you're like me, you may feel like the battles that are being fought today in our culture are between positions that are held that are as different as a British soldier and an elephant seal. How can people who reside in the same nation, who speak the same language, have such vastly different understandings of how the world works. As a matter of fact, you don't even have to look at the same nation. We can look at our own state and look at our state's voting patterns and recognize that that even within our own state, you have the culture of Atlanta and Macon and Augusta and Savannah, and then you have the culture of everybody else. Uh, I've heard people say, can we just let Atlanta secede from the state? And, And that may or may not be a bad idea. But it would appear that there are two vastly different Georgias, that there's, there's, uh, there's Georgia that thinks one way, and then there's Georgia that thinks another way. Now, this difference can be summarized in a term that has become very important in recent years called worldview. 
It means literally what it sounds like. How do you view the world? Dr. James Anderson literally wrote the book on worldview. Seriously, the book is called What's Your Worldview? So he, he wrote the book. He said this, he said, a person's worldview represents his most fundamental beliefs and assumptions about the universe he inhabits. It reflects how he would answer all of the big questions of human existence. Fundamental questions about who and what we are and where we came from, why we're here, where, if anywhere, we're headed, the meaning and purpose of life, the nature of the afterlife. And what counts as a good life here and now? You know, as we have found in the book of Proverbs, it is God's wisdom deployed in everyday human life. It touches everything that we touch. You can't have a, you can't have a moment of your life where God's wisdom is not, is not affecting it in some way or another. Not only, though, does it give us principles about how we should order our lives, we also see that divine wisdom informs our picture of how we see the world in which we live. That divine wisdom is what helps to shape our worldview as followers of Jesus. If you've got your Bibles today, we're going to be in Proverbs chapter 8. One thing to keep in mind as we look at these words from Proverbs chapter 8 is that wisdom here is, is personified, meaning that wisdom is a is a philosophical concept. It's not really something you can handle, not really something you can touch. But wisdom in chapter 8 is given the characteristics of a person. And when we find wisdom taking on these sort of characteristics, it's helpful to recognize that that wisdom is the, is the voice of Jesus that we are hearing. So rather than talking about some sort of abstract philosophical concept, we need to understand that in a sense we're actually talking about Jesus when we talk about wisdom. So as wisdom calls us to a particular view of the world from Proverbs chapter 8, understand that it is Jesus who is calling us to that worldview. So if you've got your Bible open to Proverbs chapter 8, I would invite you to stand. We'll be reading verses 1 through 11, but dealing with the entire chapter today. Proverbs chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Does wisdom not call? Does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights beside the way, at the crossroads, she takes her stand. Beside the gates in front of the town, at the entrance of the portals, she cries aloud. To you, O men, I call, and my cry is to the children of man. O simple ones, learn prudence. O fools, learn sense. Hear, for I will speak noble things, and from my lips will come what is right. For my mouth will utter truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are righteous. There is nothing twisted or crooked in them. They are all straight to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. Take my instruction instead of silver and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than jewels and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. God, I want to thank you for the words of wisdom contained in Proverbs. We pray that as we consider these words that you will help us to have our view of the world informed, not by how we want to see it, but by how you want us to see it through your divine wisdom and knowledge. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. As we consider these, this chapter, one of the things that needs to jump out at us is this very important fact. Wisdom wants to be found. 
Wisdom wants to be found. Looking back at chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, does wisdom not call? You see, God is not hiding. He is not some secret of the universe that you must embark on a quest to receive. It's not like the prize of a video game where you set out to, to conquer the game to win the prize. He's not Indiana Jones trying to figure out which cup to drink from. It is something that desires to be found. Wisdom is calling. It is raising her voice. Wisdom is on the, the hillside along the road. It's a billboard that you absolutely cannot miss. Wisdom is sitting on the city limit signs. Wisdom is at the welcome center. Wisdom wants to be found. Don't miss the consequences of this. If wisdom wants to be found, then God's wisdom has a place in the public arena, in spite of the many efforts that have been taken to silence the God's word, to silence God's wisdom. You may have heard most recently about Grace Life Church in Alberta, Canada. Of course, the media reports on this situation have been very friendly towards the Canadian authorities, but they took a very extreme measure against the church last week. On Wednesday, April the 7th, Public health authorities in Alberta, supported by officers from the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, went to the church, blocked off the roads around the church, placed a steel fence around the church, simply because the church refused to comply with the lockdown measures that were put in place by public health officials due to the COVID-19 pandemic. You may have recalled in our own nation the public fight that John MacArthur had with the California authorities regarding the extreme lockdowns that were put in place in that state. Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. had to take the mayor of Washington to court to have the draconian restrictions lifted that finally allowed the church the freedom to assemble during the pandemic. These are all prominent cases that have received national media attention. There's no telling how many smaller churches, smaller communities, smaller things have taken place where the church's voice has been silenced using the cover of the COVID-19 pandemic as a reason. In many places, it's been very, very effective. Now, understand there's a difference between the church voluntarily complying with uh, requested uh, measures to be taken. We never at, at any point in time had any problem with following the rules that Governor Kemp and health authorities placed upon us. We complied because we believed it was in the best interest of those who worshiped here and it was in the best interest of our community. We were, we were happy to comply, but we also live in a state where those measures were offered to us as suggestions, not commands, which is certainly different. In many places, the voice of the church, the voice of, of wisdom has been silenced during the course of this last 14 months. But look again at Proverbs. You can attempt to silence the church, but wisdom is still crying out. It is still making its position known. It says that wisdom is at the crossroads, taking her stand. That's an interesting term, crossroads. What does that communicate? Crossroads are a place of decision. If you come to a crossroads, you've got to make a choice. Which way are you going to go? You're going to keep going straight. You're going to go left. You're going to go right. Which way are you going to choose? The good news is wisdom, we're told, is at the crossroads, making her position known. She is revealing the right pathway to us. It is not something that is hidden from us. So if you find yourself wandering in the world, wondering which way am I supposed to go, it's not that hard. God has made his plan known to us in overwhelming 
overwhelming clarity. He has made his, his wisdom known to us. It is not hiding from us. In the same way God does not hide his wisdom, neither does it discriminate. Look at verses 4 and 5. It says, To you, O men, I call, and my cry is to the children of man. Then he says, O simple ones, learn prudence. O fools, learn sense. The wisdom of Christ is not an exclusive club. Now, it is exclusive. We are saved through Jesus. That is an exclusive statement, but it does not discriminate on who can get into the club. It's not a secret handshake that once you're in, you learn all the secrets. That's how cults work. All these new religions that have developed over the last couple of centuries are hallmarked by this sort of behavior. Don't believe me? Go visit a Mormon temple today and see what happens. You won't get in. Because in order to get in, you've got to be part of the club. You don't get to go into the temple unless you're part of the group. Talk to a Scientologist, and you're only going to hear just a portion of the things that they believe. You have to become part of the organization in order to learn more and more of the secrets. I remember as a college student, I worked at a store over at Hamilton Place, and one day this couple came into the store, and they struck up a conversation with me. They said a lot of flattering things to me, and made me feel like a million bucks. They invited me to come to a presentation after work at a local hotel conference room where I was going to hear of a guaranteed way to make a ton of money. And as a college student, a guaranteed way to make a ton of money with a free meal at a hotel conference room, why not attend that, right? When I got there, it seemed that everything was on the up and up. There was a meal. It wasn't a conference room. Everyone was nice. And as I sat down, I realized that I was sitting in a stinking Amway presentation. <laughs> I needed to join the club in order to understand the secret handshake, and I did not yet understand the secret handshake. You see, when it comes to the wisdom of Christ, there are no secrets. It's all on display. There's, there's no secret handshakes. It's available to anyone. The remarkable thing about the things of God is that God has made it very public, and there's nothing else that goes along with it that's private. He, he doesn't give us private revelations that we get, to, we get to, to discern on our own. He's made himself very clear to us. He's told us what his expectations are. He's made his wisdom known to us. He has made it very clear. And it's available to all. Verse 5, it's a call to the simple ones, the fools, to learn prudence and sense. Well, who are those people? Well, those are the folks who've not yet joined this pathway. It's a call to all those who've not taken on this pathway of wisdom. It's a call to all those who are hostile to the Lord, who are considered enemies of the cross. But this invitation is extended even to them. It doesn't matter the color of their skin the language that they speak. It's really remarkable when you stop and think about it. There's no restrictions. There's no membership prohibitions. It's available to anyone who would listen. As a result of that, we need to make sure that we're not creating unnecessary obstacles to the wisdom of God. You know, we're, we're really good at this, of taking the simple wisdom of God and adding our own 
our own things to it. We take the simple gospel, Jesus Christ crucified in our place for our sins, dead, buried, rose again on the third day, conquering hell and death. We take that simple gospel message and we, we want to add things to it in order to try to get people into the kingdom. We add things to it like Bible translations. You, know, you, can, you can be a Christian if you believe the gospel, but you've also got to read this particular version of the Bible. We add to it things like legalistic codes. You've got to dress a certain way or listen to this or do that. We take all sorts of things and add to the simple gospel. The apostle Paul said it very clearly that if anyone should preach a gospel contrary to the one that I've preached, you let him be anathema. It isn't Jesus and the gospel plus a list of instructions. We need to make sure that our lives aren't creating obstacles either. You see, when we claim to follow Christ on Sunday, but we live Monday through Friday like we don't need him, we are creating unnecessary obstacles to the gospel because people see us proclaim Christ with our words. They see us proclaim Christ with our actions on Sunday. And then on Monday, they say, you don't live like you need him. Creating obstacles to this wisdom of God that does not discriminate. The question then is this. What do we do to embrace this worldview of wisdom? What do we need to do to accept this? How, how, do, we, how do we bring this into our lives? Well, Proverbs chapter 8 gives two very simple commands that we would do well to revisit. Two simple commands necessary to embrace a worldview of wisdom. Look at Proverbs chapter 8, verse 6. It begins with a simple command, hear, hear, listen. Wives, you've said this to your husbands before, right? Here, listen to me. Pay attention. We don't get to have selective listening when it comes to the things of God, gentlemen. We have to hear what it says. We have to pay attention to what it says. It is words written for our good. We need to hear what it says. This means that we should listen with complete openness to what God has to say. We should listen with complete openness to what God has to say. When we approach the Word of God, are we approaching it with complete openness? What do I mean to approach the Word of God with complete openness? That means that when we read the words, when we listen to what God has to say, it is an indictment against us. It speaks truth to us. Every last word, every last page is a word for us. I fear that too many of us when we approach those words that are less than comfortable, we tend to want to remove those pages from the text. We want to pretend that those pages aren't there, pretend that those words are not for our good. You see, that means if we listen, if we hear, if we hear, as he says here, hear, for I will speak noble things, this means that we have to listen even when he has hard things to tell us. I don't know many people that enjoy hearing hard things. No one wants to hear their supervisor come up to them and say, hey, you're, you're not doing so great at this part of your job. No one wants your doctor to come up to you and say, hey, the test came back and the cholesterol is way out of line or the blood pressure is too high. Nobody wants to hear hard things. Nobody wants to, to have to deal with that sort of thing. But God frequently has hard things to tell us. And because of his character, he is going to be honest with us. He's going to always tell us the truth. If there is a part of our life that is disordered and is opposed to him, he is going to speak truth to us. And when we approach the word of God with honesty, we need to take it for what it says, that it has truth for us. He's going to be honest with us. But according to verse 6, what he has to tell us is noble. 
It's noble. Even when it's hard for us to receive it, even when it's difficult for us to embrace it, because God is good and his word is noble, what he has to tell us is good for us. Don't miss what he says, though, in verse 9. He says in verse 9, he says, They are all straight to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. What does that mean? One commentator described it this way. So the word of God is open to the open person. It is reasonable to the reasonable person. You must understand this about yourself. How you experience the word of God reveals yourself to you. If your own mentality, your own interior world, indeed your own worldview is based in favor of self, the gospel will leave you feeling misunderstood and underappreciated. And you will resent it. And you will blame the gospel, or at least you will blame the preacher of the gospel. Ever met somebody like that? They're mad at the church, they're mad at the preacher, they're mad at somebody who told the truth to them because they've approached the Word of God not with complete openness, but they've approached the Word of God with a self-word-oriented perspective. They've not approached the Word of God to hear the hard things that God has to say. They've approached the Word of God with skepticism over the things that God has to say. And as a result, when the Bible says, don't do this, or you shouldn't make this part of your life, or this is a, a fundamentally disordered part of your life, you don't get mad at God for telling the truth. You get mad at the person who told you. I wonder how many people have walked away from church simply because they've approached the Word of God from a perspective of self. Again, they are all straight to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. It's open to an open person, reasonable to the reasonable person. In order to hear the Word of God, we have to approach the Word of God with humility. James chapter 1, verse 21 says this, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. We don't get to approach God's wisdom like we know it all, like we've got it all figured out, like we have all the answers. Instead, we approach God's word, we approach God's wisdom, we approach Jesus knowing that we don't have all the answers, knowing that, that left to our own devices, we're going to break it every single time. We approach it with meekness, with humility, receiving what it is that God has to teach us. So we have to hear what God has to say. But then you go on down to verse 10, and we find that there's another command where God says to take so we have to hear, but we also have to take. He says to take my instruction instead of silver and knowledge rather than choice gold, for wisdom is better than jewels, and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. Hearing is one thing, but the Bible says don't just be hearers of the word, be doers of the word. You've got to put to work what you hear. I suspect that you're like me, that you heard a lot of things over the course of your education, right? Uh, you heard them, you tested over them. I mean, you did, all, you did all the things you were supposed to do with all those lessons that you were taught, whether it was in elementary school or high school or college or, or grad school, if you went there. You heard a lot of things. I heard a lot of things over the course of, of 20 years of education. 
But the list of things I took, it's a lot shorter. It's a lot shorter. Because taking here means an action. I found as that I got closer and closer to, to here that I began to take more and more things because the things that I was, I was hearing were things that were going to benefit me in the, in the calling that God had on my life. So taking means an action. It means that I, I take what I hear and I put it to work. And Proverbs says here that wisdom, wisdom's instruction is more important than silver. Knowledge rather than choice gold. You see, this is getting to the role that God's wisdom, God's word has in our life. It gets to a point of priority. In the previous chapter, God already warned us about the folly of sexual liberty, which is tearing our world apart so much today. But here God is making the case that the divine pathway of wisdom, well, it's better than financial prosperity as well. Taking implies that we place a value on that which we take. If you've ever been on a diet, you've been someone who's been conscious of calories, and you're, uh, you're at a restaurant. If you've ever been there, you, you, you know that the food that you're about to put on your plate, that it, it, it counts against what you're trying to eat, right? And so, so I, I know I've said it, my wife has said it, that's not worth the calories, right? Because I, I, when I take that, I put it into my body, it's not worth the, the cost that is going to come with it. Now, there's some things that are worth the calories, but there's a lot of things that aren't. It's not worth it. I can take it, but it's not worth it. Here God is making the case that this divine pathway of wisdom is far better than that financial prosperity that we are placing a value on that which we take. Here we're told that we ought to value Christ more than we value the material stuff of this life. Jesus is just better. He's better than all the riches better than all the gold, better than all the power and prowess and positions that we can attain. Jesus is just better. He's a better prize. He's a better thing to take than the things that this world has to offer. And the world would look at us today and say, man, that's just old-fashioned. It doesn't work like that anymore. You know, it, it doesn't make, that's not what makes the world go round. But the fact of the matter is, is Proverbs chapter 8 here teaches us something very important, that the worldview of wisdom is as relevant today as it's ever been. We hear over and over again that the Christian view of the world is old and outdated. If we continue to hold on to this old-fashioned faith, then we're just going to be on the wrong side of history, right? Heard that before. But the reality is, is that God has spoken very clearly He's spoken about this world. He's spoken about the problems contained here in the world. We're not caught off guard. We're not caught unaware. We know what God thinks about the problems in our world. Consider verse 13. We're told this, the fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. Now, we've already heard in Proverbs that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so we've added to that definition now that the fear of the Lord is not just the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is now also the hatred of evil. God has now enhanced our understanding by saying that fearing God means that we ought to hate evil. Folks, we live in a world today where we're not even sure that we can define evil anymore. Yet the Bible tells us that in order to fear God, we have to hate evil. Now, it's not saying that we hate evil people, but it is saying that we hate evil practices. 
The wise worldview acknowledges that there are evil activities and there are evil practices. And the church must be able to define those things and speak clearly with those things and speak with the, with the certainty that we know what we're talking about. We know that there are evil practices in the world today. We know that there are things that go on in the world that that are flagrant offenses to a holy God. And as the people of God who pursue righteousness, who want to have wisdom, we need to hate those evil practices. Again, that sounds intolerant. And it sounds like we just don't care. And that we're just unloving. But I firmly believe that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ can despise abortion, yet love the abortionist. I firmly believe that. I firmly believe that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ today can hate homosexuality, but love the homosexual. I'm convinced that the church can hate adultery, but love the adulterer. I really do believe that. You see, this is why we find ourselves engaged in this culture war. The godless culture of our day has embraced things that can only be described as evil. A society that is consumed with death and all of these different perversions. A society society that doesn't even know what truth is anymore. Fear of the Lord is a hatred of evil. A wise worldview also understands justice. We don't know what justice is anymore. You don't believe me? Go on a public page and post your opinion of what is just and unjust and see what sort of response you get. We condemn people without evidence or witnesses. Our trials are not conducted in courtrooms anymore. They're conducted on the television and on Facebook. People are deemed guilty before they ever stand before a judge because social media and internet has already told everyone what to think about it. We let celebrities and corporations tell us what to think regardless of what is true. We've seen Delta, Coca-Cola, and other companies come out and tell us what we ought to think about Georgia having voter ID laws. Delta Airlines came out and took a very bold stance against Georgia's voter laws in spite of the fact that Delta Airlines requires you to show an ID every time you get on their airplanes. We don't know what we're doing anymore. We let public opinion polls determine our morality. And God has said that's not how a wise worldview works. A wise worldview considers facts and principles and seeks truth in order to arrive at that which is just. We live in a world of get-rich-quick schemes and Powerball jackpots. And wisdom says that riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. Wisdom says my fruit is better than gold, even fine gold. It would say today that it's even better than Bitcoin. We may be told today that this view of the world that begins with fearing God and hating evil is old-fashioned and backwards. But it's odd how much it has to speak about this contemporary world that we call home. It's always relevant today. And it declares to those to us in verse 17, he says, I love those who love me, and those who seek me will diligently find me. You know, the worldview of wisdom is the only worldview that endures. 
In Proverbs chapter 8, beginning in verse 22, going all the way through verse 31, we see that Proverbs is integral in creation. Wisdom reminds us that it's been around a while, and it's evident in creation. It's, it's, it's remarkable to me that the things that we breathe out are the things that trees breathe in, and the things that trees, trees breathe out are the things that we breathe in. It's almost like that was planned and coordinated in some capacity. It's remarkable to me that we look around the world and we don't see chaos and disorder. We see, a, we see systems that are put in place. We see structures that make sense. It's predictable. Patterns are known. Our scientists can go outside and they can point their telescope at the heavens and they can tell us what time an asteroid is going to fly by because it works based on predictable systems and routines and plans. It's like God ordered it that way. And this worldview of wisdom has stood the test of time. It has weathered assault after assault. There are certainly other ways to see the world. But they rise and fall and change like the tides. I read an article the other day in the New York Times. The headline was this. A tiny particle's wobble could upend the known laws of physics. Oh, man, what a headline. There is some subatomic particle that shimmies in a particular way, that if it shimmies in a particular way, that everything you know about physics is suddenly wrong. Nobody try to defy gravity or anything while you're in the balcony, please. Uh, we don't want to clean the mess up. It's stunning to me that just like that, there's got to be some other discovery, something that's going to upend everything that they thought they knew. But the Lord and his word endures forever. Nobody opened the Bible yesterday and said, you know, we found a brand new thing in the word of God we've never seen before. It's been there. It's been tried, tested. It stood the test of time. And it's been seen to be steadfast and enduring in spite of every attack that it faces. And when all is said and done, it's what will stand. 1 John chapter 2, verses 16 through 17. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away, along with all its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. You know, at the end of Solomon's life, he's the king that wrote most of Proverbs. You know, Solomon, he had tasted both a worldview that had been shaped by wisdom, and he had tasted a view of the world that had been shaped by power and sex and all the things that go along with it. He had a, a legitimate chance to compare those two patterns. And at the end of his life, he reached this conclusion. We read about it in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 12, verse 9. Besides being wise, we're told, the preacher, who's Solomon, also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote the words of truth. And the words of the wise are like goads, like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings, for they are given by one shepherd. My son, he says, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, however, 
after all has been heard, Solomon says this, fear God, fear God, and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. You can literally live your life doing anything you want. You can break the law, deal with the consequences, but you can do whatever you want to do. You can make lots of money. You, be, you can become powerful. You can be president if you want to. But when all is said and done, when all the voices have been heard, when all the books have been written, when all the sermons have been preached, what remains? Fear God. Keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. And that is what has to shape our view of the world. So what is it today that shapes how you see the world? Is it a fascination with self, your desires, your wants, your needs, your self-esteem? Is it your political view, how you see the world through reds and blues and donkeys and elephants or whatever else there is? Is your view of the world shaped by your career goals? Is it shaped by power and wealth? Or is your view of the world shaped by the wisdom of God, informed by the word of God? Only one will stand, and it's one that's driven by the wisdom of God. Would you pray with me, please? God, I'm thankful for your word, for its enduring characteristic. Thank you that it stands when all else falls. Thank you that it holds up to every attack and that principally it informs us and guides us and instructs us in how we should walk. Lord, we can look at the entirety of our lives and we can see all the things that have motivated us, have driven us, have informed our vision. But there is only one perspective, one view of the world, which will stand forever and ever. And it begins where wisdom does, with the fear of the Lord and the hatred of evil. So God, may we have the confidence to walk in boldness, knowing that if we walk in your word and we walk in your wisdom, we walk in truth. May we have the courage to, to stand when a world around us tells us to back down. Would we have the faith to recognize that a, a book that's been available to every reader for generation after generation, no secrets, nothing hidden, will endure forever and ever. May we confidently completely trust it and believe it. 
Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.